Welcome to our Didache Divine Service, session number 26 today. We'll be moving from baptism into the daily significance of baptism by focusing on confession. Today's principal Bible reading is the parable of the prodigal son. Just a couple of other um, housekeeping items before we proceed. We do not have class next Monday, Monday of Holy Week, nor April 5th, Monday of Easter Week. So after today, there are two weeks free, and then we come back to finish up with just five Monday sessions after that. I would like to encourage you, the, um, the new members that have come into the congregation over the last year uh, by transfer and so forth will be um, recognized and formally received publicly at the Easter Vigil, which is 7 o'clock on Holy Saturday night. Weather permitting, it starts outside with the fire, the service of light, where the new Paschal candle, much taller than the one we have now, this is burned for two years, uh, is, um, is lit, and there's a ceremony associated with that. And then we process in uh, to the building for the vigil, uh, readings, prayers, and then the service of baptism for membership and the Lord's Supper. So that is the first of the Easter celebrations, uh, the Easter Vigil, 7 o'clock on Holy Saturday. Uh, I also am continuing reminding people we're having three services on Easter Sunday. Please note the times. Uh, there was a yellow half sheet in the bulletin last Sunday and the Sunday before last. The first service is at 7.15, not 7.45, 7.15. Then we have a 9 o'clock service, and then the last service is, is at 10.45, not 10.30. Uh, the senior choir, uh, or a portion of it, will be singing at all three services, so we are asking that you um, register for one of those three on Easter Sunday, so we can spread out the congregation over the three services. Okay, So that's what's to look forward to. There's also lots of other services during Holy Week. Holy Wednesday, three services. The last uh, in the series on the sanctity of life and murder. Maundy Thursday, there are three services, 8, 2.30, as well as 7 o'clock at night. And then on Good Friday, there are four services. The 9 o'clock tenebrae. No communion. It's meditations on the seven last words. Tenebrae means darkness. And it marks the descent of darkness from the ninth, nine o'clock in the morning to 12 noon. And then it was darkness from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. So that's the tenebrae at nine o'clock in the morning on Good Friday. Then we have a one o'clock, a three o'clock, and a seven o'clock on Good Friday. So there's lots of opportunities, but that's also why we are not having class next Monday, you have many other opportunities. You want me to survive, don't you, Kathy? Well, go to bed earlier. <laughs> All right. Another one who doesn't think that the pastor is doing enough. So, okay, we'll keep, uh, we'll keep forging forward. Uh, let us begin this morning with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, 
always more ready to hear than we to pray, and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things that we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And I'd like you to turn to page 229 in your Lutheran catechesis as we pick up where we left off last week, beginning to talk about the daily significance of holy baptism. The daily significance of holy baptism. The question in the catechism here says, what does such baptizing with water indicate or signify? And it signifies the drowning of the old Adam and the raising up of the new man. Dying to sin, being raised to new life by Christ's forgiveness. That's at the heart of baptism as we are joined to Jesus' death for sin and raised with him in his resurrection by the forgiveness that he earned for us in his death. So this dying to sin and being raised to new life is not only baptism, where we are joined to Christ, but the daily significance of baptism is that continues in the life of the Christian from now until the day we die. It's why confession of sins is so central to the Christian life and why hearing the absolution and the feast of salvation is so central. Okay, so we die to sin and we rise to new life and this is an ongoing cycle throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the lifetime of a Christian. So page 229, I'll ask the questions, you can respond. What does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So in the first three lines, it indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires. There's the crucified with Christ. Okay? The call to repentance. Dying of the old Adam. And then the next two lines, that a new man should daily emerge and arise, there's resurrection language. So we die to sin and we rise to new life. Now there's some terms there. Old Adam, that is a New Testament term. What does it refer to? The old Adam. The old Adam in us. The corruption of original sin, which means we have no natural love for God, fear of God, trust in God, apart from the miracle of the Spirit. Anything else we say about the old Adam? The old Adam is selfish, self-centered, proud arrogant, relies upon himself. So, 
All sinful thoughts, words, and deeds flow from the old Adam. The Christian still has that nature. Baptism forgives that nature, but that nature is still present. When a person is converted to faith in Christ by the Holy Spirit in the word of the gospel, of baptism and preaching and absolution, the new man is the opposite. So if the old Adam, as he is characterized by original sin, is full of sin and lust, the new man is the man of faith who fears, loves, trusts in God above all things. The new man is Christ in us. The new man is that nature that loves God, that wants to do good. So the new man has a will. So does the old Adam. The old Adam's will is set against God in what is good. The new man loves the Lord and what is good. So, St. Paul, for example, says, uh, as a Christian, he says, the good that I would do, I don't do. And that which I would not do is the very thing that I do. So what he's expressing there is this warfare, the good that I would do. So I will to do good. There he's speaking, you know, the new man wants to do good. The good that I would do, I do not do because of the weakness of the old Adam, the sinful flesh. I don't carry out what the new man of faith wants to do. That which I would not do, I don't want to do that, that's evil. <sighs> I find myself going into that. There's the, this warfare between the old Adam and the new man. Um, if you don't have a sense of that as a Christian... I don't think you're being honest with yourself. In other words, if you, if you say, I thank God I never have the slightest inclination towards self-centeredness, pride, arrogance, or any such thing, which, of course, is a proud and arrogant thing to say. Okay? So this is one of the things that troubles Christians the most, that if I'm a Christian, shouldn't I want only to do what is good at all times and, being able to, and be able to carry out? Well... That's not the reality. The reality is that we still struggle with the old Adam. At the same time, there is the new man. Okay? So part of what this does is it teaches us reliance upon Christ alone for living the Christian life. It teaches us our need for the gospel, our need for the Lord's body and blood, our need for absolution to strengthen and comfort us. It also is important because it is through the things that we suffer, particularly our own sin and weaknesses, that we come to understand what it is that Christ suffered in his death upon the cross. Conversely, when we hear the absolution and the Lord restores to us the joy of our salvation, we are not only strengthened to live the Christian life, but we also come to experience the resurrection life. 
as we are raised from the death of sin to the new life of Christ. Now, this is an ongoing cycle from now until the day we die. Just as Jesus carried our sin, you know, throughout his life from his baptism to his death, to rise again to immortality and incorruptibility, so we, part of the carrying of the cross, whoever comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's the cross of one's own sin and weakness. And what does the cross always lead to? This is easy. Death. Death. That's right. So the cross always leads to death. And our old Adam must die. It's dying, it's dying, it's dying throughout our life. And finally, at the end of our life, we die once and for all. And then when Christ comes again in glory, the trumpet sounds. And then we will be raised once and for all without the corruption of sin. The immortality and incorruption of Christ will be ours. Kathy, now you had a question. Kind of answered it. Okay. So, through all my life, I'm going to have original sin, and when it's committed, which whatever. No, no, not if it's committed. Original sin is a state of being. Original sin is a state of being a sinner. Okay. okay. Out of the corruption of being a sinner, flow sinful thoughts. Sinful words, sinful deeds. And then each time, when I'm aware of what I did, if I did, and I ask, I pray for forgiveness, I will, Jesus forgave me, but then down the line, I could commit it again. So is he going to forgive me again? A continuous thing going around and around all the time? Yes. Isn't Jesus going to think, well, keep doing this? Right. Well, that's because the strength of the Christian life is not in your ability not to sin. The strength of the Christian life is in his grace and mercy to forgive. Okay? It's like a, a, a father or a mother who loves a child. The love exists in the heart of father and mother for the child, not because they never mess up, but because they are their children. Okay. Now, the father and mother don't enjoy seeing the child mess up and stumble. But the father and mother, and it, they may grieve over that, but the father and mother's love remains constant. Notice the baptismal theme there. We'll be talking about this with the parable of the prodigal son. But the Lord's love and forgiveness precedes our confession of sins, our faith, our reception of the absolution. Our confession of sins or promise never to do something again is not what causes God to love us. Thanks be to God. His love is in his heart for us in Christ prior to our existence. He knows we're going to fail again. Yeah, because of the problem of sin. But through our failures, he wants to show us our need for his mercy that we might cling to him alone. And then the death and resurrection of Jesus is played out in our lives. That's the baptismal life. So remember, when he says, whoever comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, it not only follows Jesus to the death of ourself, but also to the resurrection. 
Because cross means death, but it also leads to resurrection and new life. Okay? And that's something we sometimes forget. Okay? Uh, so I have a couple of things. Oh, let's do the where is this written, shall we? Where is this written? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So we were buried with Jesus through baptism into death, into his death. So here's this, united with his death. Remember, Jesus' death was for sin. Jesus' death was for the atonement of sin, payment for sin. So we're baptized into his death. That means our sin is paid for by the death of Jesus. We're baptized into his death. For what purpose? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, the glory of the Father's Love in giving his son and accepting this payment for sin, we too may live a new life, may live the resurrected life. So the resurrected life is the forgiven life. So when a penitent comes and confesses, and I say in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus and lay hands on him or her, I am speaking resurrection. I forgive you all your sins. Sin leads to, remember our second article discussion? Death. Sin is the cause of death. Therefore, forgiveness of sins is the cause of resurrection and new life. Okay? That's why the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the upper room at his resurrection appearance to the disciples, the first time, peace be with you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. See how tightly resurrection and forgiveness are linked. And why did he have the authority to say, peace be with you, I forgive you your sins? Because his death upon the cross made atonement for sin, paid for sin. That's why Jesus says, all authority has been given to me by my Father on account of his death. Look, if I have died for the sins of the world and I have made full atonement for the sins of the world, then I have the authority to forgive your sins and to raise you from the dead. See? So we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, it's actually the power of the forgiveness of sins that raised him from the dead. We too may walk in newness of life by that same forgiving word. Okay. So... Um, these other terms on that page, contrition, the baptismal life, contrition is godly sorrow. Um, we are going to see it in the parable of the prodigal son where the younger son realizes his father's love that he had squandered and he has godly sorrow. What is godly sorrow? It is the remorse over sin that you've sinned against the God who loves you and has done everything for you, for your life and salvation. That's contrition. It's, it's not the same thing as, as the bank robber who is sorry he got caught. Oh, man. If I had only done this, if I had only pulled the mask up higher, I, they wouldn't have caught me. I'm so sorry I got caught because now I go to jail. That's, that's not contrition. 
Contrition is a word related to faith. Just like repentance is related to faith, contrition is related to faith. It's godly sorrow. I've sinned against the God who loves me. The baptismal life is just a, an expression of this rhythm that we've been talking about, dying to sin and being raised to new life, confession and absolution. And brotherly conversation is the conversation that we share one with another that leads us uh, to embrace anew as brothers and sisters in Christ, his mercy. John, did you have a question? Well, no, but uh, I do have something uh, going back to Kathy's point. Um, so we never really get rid of original sin. Correct. Okay. Not, well, we do in the resurrection. Yeah, 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 right, right. And this is, um, this is what the apostle Peter is speaking about in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he says, baptism now saves you. As Noah was saved through the flood, baptism now saves you. He says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of the conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The not the removal of the filth of the flesh is not as so many think, the removal of dirt from the outside of the body. The word that he uses there in Greek is flesh, sarks, not the Greek word for body, soma. Okay? Peter's point is baptism forgives you and cleanses your conscience, declaring you righteous on account of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but the filth of the flesh remains. So Paul will talk about I know that in me, that is in my flesh, sarks, there dwells no good thing. And again, the ongoing reality and presence of original sin in the life of the Christian is not to indulge our sin. Well, then I, since I have this original sin, let us indulge every appetite. No, it is rather to teach us how we cannot save ourselves, one, and two, to direct us to the suffering and death of Christ, whereby he bore that for us. Okay. All right, so in your notes here, the image of daily drowning, death of the old nature, and resurrection of the new man, contrition, godly sorrow for sin, and confession of sins, repentance, fleeing to Christ for renewal in his forgiveness. And I stress these things about contrition, and especially now about repentance, is because uh, there's a lot, there are a lot of Christians or Christian groups or denominations that make repentance about, I have this problem, I'm not going to do that anymore, I have sinned in this way, I'm not going to do that anymore, and that's how they describe describe repentance. Stop doing that bad behavior. And it sounds, uh, it sounds right, but what, who is left out of it? Christ is left out of it. Also, how do you repent, going back to your question again, John, about original sin, how do you repent of being in the state of original sin if repentance is about stopping being 
what you're being or doing what you're doing, well, then I guess you're not repentant because you're still a sinner, you see? Repentance is the acknowledgement of sin, yes, the desire to flee from it, yes. So we don't indulge our old Adam's appetites, but it is the fleeing to Christ. That's what's left out of so many discussions on repentance. Okay? The recognition, I cannot be my own savior, and I'm running away from relying upon myself to relying upon Christ. And for him, the answer is always, yes, come to me, all you who labor. I will give you rest, and the rest that he gives is his forgiveness, mercy, and unconditional love. So the next bullet here, the day, go ahead, Polly. The desire to amend, yes. The desire to amend your sinful life is part of the, new, the will of the new nature. Okay? And that's part of repentance, yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, and Paul is expressing it. The good that I would, I do not do. That which I would not is the very thing that I do. He's expressing the desire to amend his sinful life. But then he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then his answer is not, I'm going to try harder. No, his answer is, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's repentance, again, fleeing to Christ. So there is a desire. The new man has a desire to amend the sinful life. The new man wants to pray every day. The new man wants to come joyfully to the divine service. The new man wants to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. The new man wants to love the neighbor in place of himself. The new man desires all of those things. And to the extent that any of those things, good things, come forth in us, they are the fruit of the reception of Christ Jesus in his absolution. Susan? Do, do you promise with the aid of the Holy Spirit to amend your sinful life? Yeah. Uh, there was a little bit too much what we call synergism uh, in there. Okay. All right. So uh, the daily significance of holy baptism looks forward to the next part of the catechism, confession, and the office of the keys. Um, if you turn in your Lutheran catechesis then to page 241... You have the one question uh, for today before us. <clears throat> I'll ask it and you can respond. What is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins. And second, that we receive absolution. That is forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. So, I have some notes here. Confession of sin and confession of faith in Christ are actually the same thing. Confession's in your notes too. Confession of sin and confession of faith in Christ are actually the same thing. 
So if I say, let us confess the faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed, and we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Why do we believe in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? Because it's true, yeah. We are sinners, yeah. He is our creator and our savior. So faith is trust in what God says. So when we say, Lord, have mercy. I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. Forgive me. That is a confession of faith also. You see? So confession of faith in Jesus, confession of sins, is saying back to God what he has said to us and we've come to believe in and come to trust is true. So that's why I say here the two fundamental points. I am a sinner. That's a confession of faith. Christ is my Savior. I cannot save myself. That's a confession of faith. Just like, I believe in God the Father Almighty and Jesus Christ is only Son. That's a confession of faith. So all forms of confession express what we have come to know and believe is true according to God's word. I believe, therefore I have spoken. Uh, my teacher in catechetics, Dr. Corby, used to say, when you confess your sins, you are giving glory to God. Let me repeat that. When you confess your sins, you're giving glory to God. And the reason he taught that is because the Bible teaches it. In Psalm 51, which is David's confession of sins, born out of the prophet Nathan's ministry to him when David had fallen into grievous sin of adultery and arranging for the murder, the death of Uriah the Hittite and so forth to try to cover up his sin of adultery. In that psalm, David says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare or show forth your praise. Okay? Uh, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. So, it gives glory to God when you say to God, in a sense, you're right, I'm dead wrong. You're true, I'm full of sin. That honors God because it's a lot more honest than the Pharisee who comes into the temple and says, I thank God I'm not like other sinners like David over there. I do this and I do that. You lying, proud, arrogant, self-righteous fiend. And that doesn't give glory to God. That guy's giving glory to himself. Okay? Okay. Uh, the purpose of confession is the last bullet here, is to receive Christ's absolution for the strengthening of our faith in Christ. And that faith in Christ that is strengthened by the absolution is then, as I uh, spoke of last week in the sermon, faith in Christ is then active in love for the neighbor. You follow? So the generator of love for the neighbor is reception of Christ, his absolution. 
So the more we have difficulty loving our neighbor, the more we need Jesus' forgiving word. Okay? Um, that's where confession and absolution come into play as the ordinary part of the Christian life. Because if you want to live the Christian life, you need Jesus. You need the comfort, grace, mercy, strength, forgiveness that he gives to you. So confessing one's sin is for the purpose of receiving that absolution to strengthen your faith. And I say, think of the absolution as the ongoing I love you from the Lord Jesus. Faith lives from his love and forgiveness. Think of it as the ongoing I love you from the Lord Jesus. So uh, the, the devil likes to dupe us and say, oh, my sins are forgiven. Now I get on to the living of the Christian life. Instead, it, so it diminishes the, the value and the centrality of the forgiveness of sins. Instead, we need to understand this forgiveness as the constant I love you from the Lord, just like a, a wife would like to receive that from her husband. And the ongoing reception of that love from her husband comforts her, strengthens her, fortifies her to be able to live joyously. That's the way it is as a Christian. What enables us to live joyously is the ongoing reception of Jesus' love through the forgiveness of our sins. It is not, and I repeat, confession is not about my sins pile up. I got 2, 3, 5, 7, 18, 24, 69, 326, and then absolution brings them down to zero. That's not it. We stand constantly as Christians in the flood of Jesus' blood declared righteous. He doesn't look at us over the course of a week from Sunday to Sunday as leaving church spotless, white, clean, and then getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier and more foul. And then we got to come back and be washed anew, and then we're white again, and they get dirtier and dirtier. No, no, no. Why is that not true? Well, because the scriptures don't teach it. But it's not true because in our baptism, we are declared to be righteous. So you go back to original sin. Original sin is the state of being a sinner. That's held in tension with being justified. Baptism, so that having been justified, declared righteous by his grace, that means there's nothing lacking in you. Let me give you some practical implications. Doesn't every sin damn yeah, every sin damns. So, okay, if it is true that your sins are piling up, then you will never have the certainty of salvation, ever. So then you come to church, you confess your sins, you leave on a Sunday morning, you have a spat with your spouse, and you get hit by a semi, and you're both dead, even though you said unkind things. Oh, well, too bad. I guess you're damned to hell because your sins have piled up and those were not forgiven. No, your sin is paid for at the cross. What the absolution does is declare to you the eternal and ever-present reality for you as a Christian. You are justified, declared righteous. You're forgiven. 
by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, and it covers all of your sin, including original sin, from the beginning to the end of your life. Again, then someone says, well, then why do we need forgiveness? That's why I want you to think of forgiveness as the ongoing I love you from the Lord Jesus. Otherwise, you could say, you know, the night we were married, I said I love you to my wife, and I've never said it again. I've never given any gesture of love to her whatsoever again. What does she need it for? Once is good enough. Okay? Well, that's absurd. So in the same way, look at the absolution as the ongoing I love you from the Lord. And you can take it out of the marital imagery and put it into the parental imagery. Those of you who have children, your love for your children remains constant. Even though they stumble and fall and fail and so forth. You don't do this. See, if, if the sins are piling up so the more sins there, the more angry God is with you and the more he hates you. And then when he forgives you, then he loves you again. No, that would be like a, a father or a mother. Well, you've sinned. I don't love you anymore. Are you kidding me? Now, if we don't do that as evil parents, how much more does God not do that? Get the point? All right. So confession is that we confess our sins, admit to our sin, and absolution that we receive Christ's forgiveness. Let's go now to uh, the second page of your outline, Luke chapter 15. We're going to focus mainly on the parable of the prodigal son, but chapter 15 has three parables in succession. The parable of the lost sheep, of the lost coin, and then of the prodigal son. The first question I have for you is, what was the context for Jesus to tell the three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son? Let's look at this. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, to Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. So what was the context of him speaking these parables? Uh, yeah, what, go ahead and use the language. What does verse 2 say? The Pharisees and the scribes were objecting to him eating with tax collectors and sinners. That's the, that's the reason he told the parables. If you're a holy man, you wouldn't eat with these sinners. If you were a holy man, you wouldn't associate with Kathy. You'd certainly have nothing to do with Polly. And David, well, you wouldn't even look at him. But the fact that you associate with Kathy and Polly and David proves that you are no Messiah. That comes from the belief that the Messiah has come to reward those who have accomplished. You've done many good works, Gil. Now come. And you are a sinner. Get away from me. That's the context of him telling the, the parable. 
So the scribes and the Pharisees who were, you're quite right, Tom, self-righteous, who did they believe in? Themselves. Who did they trust in for salvation? Themselves. Their own works, exactly. So then he says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now, before going to the next question, there's a, there's a characteristic here in Luke's gospel in the teachings of Jesus that he records. And so often, particularly in the parables that Luke records, he is highlighting how different Jesus is from us, or in this case, from the scribes and Pharisees. Do the scribes and Pharisees have any interest in being merciful or compassionate to sinners? None whatsoever. So I could ask the question, is Jesus like the Pharisees? No, thanks be to God. He is not like the Pharisees. Okay, so now this question. What is so radical in what the shepherd does? He leaves 99 sheep in the wilderness. Are you kidding me? And then he goes after this one stupid lost sheep. Cut your losses. Let it go. Stay with the 99. If he works for me, that's what I want him to do. So what Jesus is highlighting is how radically different his love for sinners is than the lovelessness of the Pharisees. You see? They are full of works righteousness. They had no use for the sinner, as was indicated by the fact that they murmured against Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. This is the radical character about the curveballs of Jesus' parables. They're not illustrations that make it easier for us to understand something. They're rather these wonderful stories that help us meditate more deeply upon the miracle of God's grace. God's grace is his undeserved, unmerited love for us. Now that leads to the next one. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So what is the singular focus of the woman? The singular obsession of the woman. The lost coin. Now, that does have an anchor in real life. A frantic woman who can think of nothing else but finding that which she has lost. She's almost insane with her obsession. She's like, 
got what they call OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. She cannot rest until she finds that which was lost. Okay. So Jesus compares himself with a woman uh, to a woman with OCD. Now. You laugh, but I want you to see the radical character of that. The, the Pharisees never had any interest in comparing themselves to a frantic woman. They would never do that. But he does. Because what is he frantic for? He's frantic for our salvation. That's the radical character. And he doesn't rest until we receive that. And so I just want you to think, of, now this, this coin, by the way, was probably part of uh, an ancient... Uh, wedding necklace. And that's why it would be like you losing your diamond ring or the diamond out of your ring or something like that. He just wants us to see how much he loves you. You are more apt to doubt his love for you than he is to stop loving you because of your sins. He doesn't stop at all. And that's, that's one of the promises of our baptism. When he calls you by name in the waters of baptism, he's saying, I will never stop loving you. Think about that. The God of the universe, the Son of God through whom all things were made, who became flesh and blood, who went to the cross, who died for you, says, says I will never, I will never stop loving you. We turn away from him, but he doesn't turn away from us. And we're going to see that in the next parable is part of the reason why this prodigal son is brought home to the father. It is the father's love that draws him back. Okay. Um, so I say here, these three parables... Oh, I, I didn't ask that. What is heaven's greatest joy? Both parables. The sinners who receive salvation, which is what a repentance... Remember, if we talk about repentance as fleeing away from self to Jesus, that's repentance, the faith that flees to Jesus. So the greatest joy of heaven is that they receive Jesus as repentant sinners. That's why the angels at the birth of Jesus say on all the company of heaven, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what gave them joy. So what gives heaven its greatest joy is not our accomplishments, but the reception of Jesus, the one good gift that is our salvation. So these three parables are baptismal parables on how the Lord's grace and mercy constantly calls us back to him in repentance and faith. This is the baptismal life. Let me explain that a little bit further. The sheep that was lost had been a part of the what? The flock. The coin that was lost had been a part of the woman's necklace. Okay? The son who went away from home had been a part of the family. Do you see the baptismal imagery? In baptism, we are made part of the flock of Christ. We become one of the sheep of the good shepherd. Okay? We belong to him. Uh, we're part of the family. Jesus is our spiritual father. We are all brothers and sisters within the household of faith. So part of what the 
uh, these three parables do is answer the question, is it possible for a baptized Christian who has known and believed in the Lord, if they fall away, is it possible for them to be brought to repentance? Yes. The sheep was found. The coin was found. The prodigal son was restored. What a great comfort that is. Okay? So that leads us on to the parable of the prodigal son itself. Verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. What were the younger son's portion of goods from his father? Inheritance, right. Um, so he wants his inheritance ahead of time. Now, an inheritance is typically something that is received from your father upon his death as a gift or something you merit, as a gift. So he's demanding this. And by saying, give me my portion of goods, it is as if he wants the father dead. I wish you were dead, then I could have the stuff now. If you keep on living, you're going to spend it all, and there's not going to be anything left for me. Is that what you told your father, Tom? Okay, good. All right. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or wasteful living. Now, what I'd like to know is, what did the younger son squander? His father's love. It's not just the money, the goods, the possessions, the land, the house, the home. Look, he, he gave you this beautiful house and then you turn it into a wreck. You didn't take care of it, you ungrateful son. What he squandered was his father's love. What he sinned against was his father's love. That's what he trampled underfoot. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. Now, I don't have this in your questions, but this is a significant point nonetheless. When he left his dad, did he think he was going to find fulfillment away from home? Yeah. Absolutely. And so the way, this is a parable. Jesus is telling the story. He's creating the language. This son believed he would receive fulfillment in indulging the appetites of his flesh and leaving his father's house. But in the end, that was not true. So there is no peace. There is no contentment. There is no joy for us in our life apart from Christ. And a lot of times Christians led by their sinful flesh, their old Adam, fall into the trap of looking for love in all the wrong places or looking for fulfillment where it's not to be found. If only I had this, if only I had that, if only I had more money, if only I had a bigger house, if only I had a different job, if only I had a different spouse, then I would be happy. There's only one thing that can give us true happiness and contentment, and that is Christ and his mercy. 
It doesn't mean we don't struggle against those other forms of false faith. We do. But uh, the way Jesus tells the story, he spent all, there rose a famine, he began to be in want. Then he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now remember, swine in the Bible, are they clean animals or unclean? They're unclean among the Jews. So here now, he's, the picture is of a son who is face down in the pig slop, completely destitute. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Again, he could have eaten the pig slop, but the way Jesus tells the story is he was still hungry because no one gave him anything. It is as if he were saying he was unable to satisfy the deepest yearnings of his heart. So he's empty. He is totally empty. Now, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now I ask the question, what called the younger son back to his father? His father's love. If he had known his father to be a bitter, cruel, unloving, tyrant, he never would have gone back. Because if I go back, he's going to kill me. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? He recognizes the compassion of his father, even toward the hired servants. So it is the father's love that calls him back. Now, in verse 17, there is a reflexive pronoun that is a baptismal pronoun. When he came to himself, realized who he was, namely the father's son. This is what God calls us to do by the gospel, to realize anew our baptismal identity. One of the things that the devil does not want you to believe is that you are a child of God. He doesn't. Because if he can convince you, you're not a child of God. You're a wicked, foul sinner. You're an alcoholic. You're a thief. You're this, that, the other thing then that promotes being what the, the lie of the devil declares us to be. Rather, God wants us to believe what our baptism says. You're a child of God. For Jesus' sake, you are righteous. So when he came to himself, I am a son of my father. And remember what I said. Our baptism means that the Lord will never turn away from you. He will never stop loving you. So in the strength of that call of your baptism, in the strength of the father's love, the prodigal goes back. I will go to him. And then what is this called? I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before earth. I'm not worthy to be called your son. What is that? Confession. Confession. You see? He speaks the truth. Tom? Tom? Yeah, 
Yeah, he saw himself as a wretch, but when he came to himself, he realized, a wretched man that I own, I am, Christ is my savior. I'm a child of God, okay? So that's coming to yourself, coming to the baptismal identity because that identity of baptism as a child of God is not based upon your works. It is based upon the forgiveness and mercy of the Lord, okay? And that's what gave him the strength to confess. Now, he's messed up, isn't he, though? He does confess, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son, and that's all true. But then he messes up. What does he say? Make me like one of your hired servants who, who has to earn your favor, earn my way back in the family. Okay? Now look at what happens in response to this. He arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Has he confessed anything yet to his father? No. Look at the next question. The father's love and forgiveness for his son comes before the son's repentance. How is this shown in the parable? When the son is a great way off, the father lifts up his robes and runs to him. Okay? When he's still a great way off. That's a beautiful image of what we've been talking about, how it's the father's love that draws him back. Because it's the father's love that went out to him when he was still a great way off. Do you follow that? And then look at what the father allows him to do. He allows him to confess the truth, but he will not allow him to assign his own penance. Make me like one of your hired servants. He arose, came to his father, and then said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned, that's true, against heaven and in your sight, that's true, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, that's true. But the father said to his servants, see, he ends it there. Bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again, and it is the father's love and forgiveness that raised him from the dead. He was lost and is found. It was the father's love and forgiveness that found him. He didn't find himself. And they began to be merry. So I said here, what are the images of baptismal absolution in this parable? They are in verse 22. Baptismal imagery, verse 22, of the baptismal absolution. Don't all speak at once. The best robe. Throughout the scriptures, the robe of righteousness is Christ's righteousness that covers all of our sin. The ring, Luther talks about the ring of faith and the sandals on the feet. So you can trample sin, death, and the devil under your feet. That's the clothing of baptism that was given. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. So the next question is, what is the image for the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper in the parable? The killing of the fatted calf and the eating. For this my son was dead and is alive again. So the merriment of this feast is the celebration of the repentance and the salvation that has come to this son 
of the father who had squandered his father's love but was now being restored. See, what's that? The death of the old Adam and the raising up the new. So what is celebrating is a, as a sinner is forgiven. Is a child of God who had gone astray has been restored to the family. If you had a child who had gone astray from you, who had rejected everything you know, believe, and have taught, but then came home to you in tearful contrition and repentance, would it not give you the greatest joy? That's why there's, greater, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 who need no repentance. And so the Lord's Supper, see how all of these things then flow together. The bapti- baptism that happens once has ongoing baptismal life and contrition and repentance as we're drawn back to the Lord, and then we celebrate. That's why I chose to use the term Eucharist, the Greek word for thanksgiving, It's the thanksgiving for the Lord's gift of salvation to sinners in his body and blood that are eaten and drunk. Okay? And, of course, the fatted calf being killed is an image of Christ's death upon the cross where he was slaughtered for us and then we feast upon him. All right. Now the next part. You know, this is sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. That's most common. But it would better be called the parable of the prodigal sons in the plural. Now, verse 25. The older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. Notice the servant calls the younger son his brother. Your brother. Is that the way to treat your brother, David? Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he, that is the older son, was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. You see, his lower lip is so far out, it's touching the ground. (laughs) But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Why did the older brother refuse to enter into the feast? Pride. Jealous pride. So when he refused to enter into the feast, what was he believing about his brother, A, And what was he believing about himself, B? No, 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 no. The older son was not believing that he was a... What was he... He believed that the one who had left was a sinner. Not only the sinner, Tom. Okay, okay. but also what? Unworthy. Unworthy, yes. That younger son is unworthy. He's an unworthy sinner. And what did he believe about himself? I am worthy. And you've never given me the fatted calf and so forth. So what did the older brother accuse his father of? 
not loving him, of doing evil to him. He wanted to be rewarded on the basis of his works. And he, his faith was entirely in himself. Now the father's love and forgiveness for his son comes before the son's repentance. Also here, just as it did for the younger son. How is this shown in the parable? What's that? He goes out to him. Just as the father, when the younger son was still a great way off, went out to him, so now he's outside pouting. And the father doesn't, in the inside, say, if you're going to pout like that, you can just rot out there. That's not what the father does. That's what I would do. No, he goes out to him. And he pleads with him. He doesn't grab him by the, you know, lapels and shake him. What's the matter with you, you self-righteous, ungrateful, wretched son? Get out of my sight. Would he have deserved that according to the judgment of the law? Absolutely. But that's not what the father does. You see, this is why, while the law is necessary to lead to repentance, without the law being preached with the gospel in view, God's love that is relentless, there can be no repentance. Because repentance is the fleeing away from self-reliance to reliance upon Christ. My love is yours. And so, uh, you have here the father saying, Son, you are always with me. Notice the baptismal language. He addresses him as son. Boy, he, he had squandered his father's love as much as the younger son. In a different way. You know, the younger son squandered his father's love in covetous, adulterous, idolatrous, self-indulgent living. The older son had squandered his father's love in pious, self-righteous living wherein he trusted in his works. But both were the same, you see. And the father says, son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. What a wonderful expression of the gospel. In our baptism, we become the children of God, and he withholds nothing from us. All heaven is ours. Every gift of salvation is ours. And then he says, it was right that we should make Mary and be glad. Your brother was dead, is alive again, and was lost and is found. So when we come to the feast, what we're celebrating is the salvation of every lost sheep or of every child of God who has come back to the fold by the grace of God. Now I ask the question here, who does the older brother represent? Now, this goes back, actually, to the beginning of the chapter. The scribes and Pharisees. And notice how Jesus tells the parable. It was the objection of the scribes and Pharisees murmuring against him that he eats with tax collectors and sinners that he tells the parable, the three parables. But the last parable ends open-endedly. Okay? We don't know. Did the older son come into the house or not? We're not told. Did the scribes and the Pharisees repent? Well, some of them did. Some of them didn't. 
One of the chief ones who did, who was probably in the audience hearing this and filled with rage at Jesus' mercy to unworthy sinners, was Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. It's interesting, in Luke's Gospel, and Luke was associated with Paul, there are so many more references to this kind of thing where a self-righteous Pharisee like Saul comes to know and receive the grace of God, not by works, you know, in the gospel. So the final question here is, what had to die in both of these sons? The old Adam. The old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires so that a new man would daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. And confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins. Second, that we receive absolution. That is forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself. Not doubting, but firmly believing that by it, by that absolution, our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. Let us prepare for the sacrament by the singing of hymn 616, a wonderful hymn and text written by Kurt Reinhardt, who was born in 1969. And he still is alive because he's a relatively young man. And you will see baptism in this hymn, confession and absolution in this hymn, and the Lord's Supper in this hymn. Baptismal waters cover me As I approach on bended knee My Father's mercy here I plead For
Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we acknowledge your great goodness toward us, and praise you for the mercy and grace that our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, and our hearts have known in the precious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We sincerely repent of the sins of this day and those in the past, pardon our offenses, correct and reform what is lacking in us, help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Inscribe your law upon our hearts and equip us to serve you with holy and blameless lives. May each day remind us of the coming of the night when no one can work, in the emptiness of this present age, keep us united by a living faith through the power of your Holy Spirit with him who is the resurrection and the life that we may escape the eternal bitter pains of condemnation. By your Holy Spirit, bless the preaching of your word and the administration of your sacraments. Preserve these gifts to us and to all Christians. Guard and protect us from all dangers to body and soul. Grant that we may, with faithful perseverance, receive from you our sorrows as well as our joys, knowing that health and sickness, riches and poverty, and all things come by permission of your fatherly hand. To this end, we especially commend to you our brothers and sisters suffering afflictions of the body. Pastor Kinney, under treatment for cancer. Erwin Cabrera, for cancer. John Bruss, recuperating from surgery. Kurt Runau, from surgery. Deacon Gatchel, awaiting surgery. Jeremy Lafore and his family as he battles ALS. Tom Brass, Dwayne Bira, Tom Pinzel, Jim Nietzsche, Brian Neonaber, Jill Franklin, Allison Witte, and Roger Laubenstein, suffering with cancer. 
Keep us this day under your protective care. Preserve us securely trusting in your everlasting mercy, goodness, and love. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and grace. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who accomplished the salvation of mankind by the tree of the cross that where death arose, their life also might rise again, and that the serpent who overcame by the tree of the garden might likewise by the tree of the cross be overcome. Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. At your command, Abraham prepared to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on the mountain. Yet in mercy you provided a ram as a substitute. We give you thanks that on Calvary you spared not your only son, but sent him to offer his life as a ransom for many. As we eat and drink his body and blood, grant us like Abraham our father to trust in your promise now fulfilled in Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks... He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, 
which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. body of Christ given for you, the body of Christ given for you, the body of Christ given for you.
The body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you, body and soul, in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace.
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank and praise you for feeding us the life-giving body and blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Send us your Holy Spirit, that having with our mouths received the Holy Sacrament, we may by faith obtain and eternally enjoy your divine grace, the forgiveness of sins, unity with Christ, and life eternal. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.